Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, directing the TOSIC Early Cancer Therapeutics Program and co-directing the Cleveland Clinic Sarcoma Program. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Laura Shoemaker, Chair of Palliative and Supportive Care here at Cleveland Clinic. She's here today to talk to us about navigating difficult conversations. So welcome, Laura. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, tell everyone your title. Give us a little bit more of an idea, though, about what do you do here at Cleveland Clinic? Sure. Uh, well, you mentioned I'm the leader of our palliative and supportive care group here at Leader Cl- at uh, Cleveland Clinic. That's my leadership role. Uh, but clinically, I'm a palliative medicine physician. So I treat and support patients and families who are experiencing serious illness. Uh, everything from cancer to advanced cardiac, lung, neurological diseases. We have a lot of different people that might be listening in, different backgrounds. Um, palliative care. It, palliative care is a word that some that scares some people. We're going to talk about difficult conversations, but maybe it starts with just uh, if someone were to come see you. What, what What is palliative care? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. Palliative care, simply put, is really just specialized care for people uh, who are living with serious illness. It's provided by a team of palliative specialists. So that includes physicians like me, also includes nurses, social workers, sometimes uh, complementary therapists. Uh, And the goal is to improve quality of life and reduce suffering uh, for both patients and families as, as they navigate all the complexities of serious illness. You know, those things range from physical symptoms like pain, bowel issues, sleep issues, uh, the emotional impact of serious illness, mood-related issues, uh, issues with relationships. So, you know, good palliative care is really uh, delivered alongside curative, life-prolonging, other supportive therapies at any any stage um, and along the course of a serious illness. And I guess um, that's a great sort of explanation of palliative care, but a lot of people mistakenly think hospice. So just quickly differentiate what hospice is in comparison. Sure, sure. You know, um, hospice is always palliative care. Palliative care isn't always hospice. So hospice is that part of conservative, comfort-focused care nearer to the end of life when time might be short. Palliative care, on the other hand, like I said earlier, is delivered along the trajectory at any stage of a serious illness, alongside curative treatments, alongside disease-modifying or life-prolonging therapies. And at all times, when we're doing palliative care and hospice, we're wanting to focus on the patient and their loved ones um, and and what they need to improve their quality of their life and, and reduce suffering. Excellent. So we're going to talk about um, having difficult conversations, delivering bad news, some some tips and thoughts about that. As, as a palliative care specialist, what are some of the things that most often encountered in terms of need to deliver bad news? Sure. Well, you know, I think the conversation really depends on the unique experience of that patient. So um, I, oftentimes I have no idea what we're going to be talking about during any specific visit or encounter. So it really starts from a place of inquiry. 
wherein I'm trying to understand their unique story or experience of that illness. And once I do that, and I can ask about what their experience has been, it takes us to all kinds of different places. Sometimes we talk about symptoms, you know, the the burdens of either the disease itself, or oftentimes the treatments for the diseases bring a lot of symptoms. Sometimes we're talking a lot about the emotional journey, distress, how do you cope? A lot of times we're talking about how they apply their unique values, preferences, and goals as they navigate the relative benefits and burdens of the disease treatments that are available to them at different courses of the disease. And then sometimes we're also talking about time, right? When time is uncertain or time might be short. So prognostic conversations come up. And again, we try to think about those things together within the unique framework of that individual's experience their preferences, their goals, their values. So lots of things come up. We never know where we'll end. So we start with a place of of wanting to understand first. Which is fantastic because I think it's um, safe to say that as physicians, we talk too much and we don't listen enough. Um, it, it, for these difficult conversations, I'm suspecting that's the case. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, we, we do. We talk too much. I think it's important to ask first before we tell anyone anything. Um, I think it's important to listen more than you talk. And I think to be ready, if you're talking about serious things or you know bad news as, as it's often called, uh, there's going to be emotion there. Emotion is normal. It's actually, I, I tell a lot of my patients and families, you know, if you weren't emotional, <laughs> that would be strange. <laughs> that would be abnormal, right? So uh, there's a lot of emotion here. So being ready for the emotion and responding uh, to the emotion uh, when we encounter it, when we're talking about serious things. I mean, I guess when you say respond to the emotion, I think one thing that oftentimes troubles f- physicians having these conversations is how how they handle their own emotion mm. and how how much of our emotions we can share with patients during those conversations. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think you're right. That that might be a barrier. Uh, just being comfortable with emotion, whether it's ours or someone else's, that's not something that comes naturally to everyone. Most of us, you know, either unintentionally or intentionally need to develop some comfort around uh, the expression of emotion and the experience of emotion as you sit with someone who's facing a serious life-changing or potentially life-threatening diagnosis. So I think acknowledging for yourself, again, that it's normal <laughs> to have emotion when the stakes are high uh, and, and to give yourself some grace and some space to feel authentic emotion. Uh, and I think what most patients and families want is really our attention and our presence as we're trying to support them navigating something that's really challenging. So, you know, if my intention around my emotions is not to hide them or avoid them or uh, pretend they don't exist, but, you know, in a professional way to acknowledge when something's sad, acknowledge when something's scary, um, also acknowledge and celebrate um, when you can find joy during sad and scary times too along the way. And share in that. That's, I mean, that's how I manage my emotions is I, I just try to share in the emotion in a way that's authentic 
for me. I still remember uh, spending time in the hospital, like as a as a resident or a fellow, and I, somebody gets a new cancer diagnosis, and the primary team is kind of hovering around the nurses station, and they're like, "Have you told them? Have you told them? Have you told them?" And it's and it's this sort of like, quite honestly, it seems like fear on their part to have those discussions. Mm. How do you how do you work with as in a team approach? whether it's with oncologists or what other other specialists to to kind of make sure that the right people are having their, those difficult discussions at the right time. Wow, that's a complicated question. Um I think when I think about the collegial relationships and the collaborative relationships that we have with the oncologists, the nurses, the other members of the care team, I think you bring empathy and listening and space to them as well, right? So Part of my role too, I think, is being a member of the team as, as any of us is, is to support support that team. So acknowledging with the oncologists, with the other uh, clinicians, this is hard. This is scary. This is potentially sad. Uh, what we're going to talk about with this patient and their family today is, is life-changing. And we can try to imagine for ourselves, if we were sitting on the other end of that conversation, how that might feel. So again, acknowledgement putting a space there so that the clinical team can process that. And as far as making sure the right person has the conversation, I think there's lots of people who can be the right person to have the conversation. I think someone who's willing to bring presence, partnership, honesty, and ready to sit with and respond to emotion Anyone who's willing and able to do those things is the right person to have the conversation, regardless of what their professional title is. Makes sense. You've mentioned empathy a few times. I mean, I'll, I'll ask it in a way that's silly, but can you learn empathy? And if so, how? Mm, that's a great question. I think you can learn empathy. And I think what we're talking about, you know, empathy is, I think, is two parts. It's you know, a lot of times people say, oh, it's putting yourself in someone else's shoes, imagining what it would be like to live someone else's experience. Yes, that's the creative, imaginative part of empathy. And most of us have feelings <laughs> and have experienced joyful things, sad things, scary things in our lives. So we can access those emotions even if we haven't lived the same experience that's led to the emotion. So I might not have lived with a cancer diagnosis yet. However, I have experienced other things in my life that have been scary or sad or uncertain. So I can access that emotion. And then the second part of empathy is expressing it. So I think the first part, most everyone has access to if you imagine it in that way. The second part sometimes comes naturally, the expressing the empathy. And if it doesn't, that's something absolutely you can teach because empathy is expressed both nonverbally and verbally. A nonverbal expression of empathy is giving someone your full attention, looking them in the eyes, asking first, listening to their response, not talking over them, you know. Those are things that, if again, if they don't come naturally, you can certainly learn to do and make part of your clinical practice. I think the verbal expressions of empathy as well can be taught. Many of us, when we think about empathy, we think immediately about validation, right? So things like, oh, anyone would feel that way if they were in your situation. And validating empathy can be really appropriate and effective. 
And there's other ways to verbally express empathy too. So, you know, seeing emotion, calling out emotion is empathy. Uh, Acknowledging the impact of the emotion, what it's like to feel scared or worried or excited. Uh, And then supportive statements too, you know, uh, just letting people know they're not alone in it. Um, That might sound something like, I can hear you're going through a really difficult, uncertain time. Please know you're not alone in this. I'm here to help you figure this out, right? So those kinds of verbal expressions of empathy that let the other person know that you're not only trying to share that emotion with them, but you're letting them know um, really is what kind of brings the whole thing together. Makes sense. You've talked before about learning these behaviors. Um, You know, here at Cleveland Clinic, I know there's a number of kind of communication courses and ways to try to teach caregivers to to have conversations. So is there anything you can can let us know about some of those efforts to to train people to to have those conversations? Yeah, you know, uh, years years and years ago we um had a center and I think we still do have the center but um it developed a really excellent framework for uh, really enhancing our communication generally with with patients and families. And a lot of that was around verbal expressions for empathy. That was called the Center for Excellence in Healthcare Communication. They taught a lot of the things that I kind of just reviewed, the four different kinds of empathy, for example, supportive statements, acknowledging statements, validating statements, emotion naming, you know, those are all part of the core curriculum. I didn't come up with these myself. (laughs) Um, The other place I think where we teach clinicians how to connect with others in a relationship-centered way um, is our Center for Excellence in Coaching and Mentoring. Uh, And we, you know, we talk about relationship-centered communication in that course. We talk about deep listening, expressions of empathy, helping people reflect by reframing situations so we can navigate both clinical and professional challenges. One thing that um, I, I, I always find difficult is this, um, is the environment and the setting at which to give bad news, have difficult conversations. And one thing that comes to mind is discussions around, you may find something in a lab or, or a CT scan, for instance, or get a biopsy result and the patient's at home you know, how do you how do you navigate bad news, difficult discussions um, when you can't necessarily have the person in a room with you? Do you yeah. bring them in? You know, it always seems a little wonky to say, you know, I need to have a serious conversation with you, but I'll have it once you're here because then that just yeah. generates anxiety. So any guidance yeah. to people about like situationally how you you deal with those those sorts of times when you can't necessarily just have everything, right there at the right time when you want to have that conversation. Yeah. You know, I think ideally, as we get to know patients and families, we ask them questions about how do you like to receive communication? Are you a big picture person? Um, Are you a detailed person? You need to be in the weeds on everything. Are you someone who likes to receive information alone and share it with your loved ones? Are you someone who likes to have a loved one with you? as you receive information. So, you know, if we can get to know people in that way, then it sets us up in the future when we find ourselves in predicaments, you know, when important and potentially 
um, serious information needs to be shared, we already know what their preferences are and we can try to facilitate that kind of situation. If you don't know, I still don't think it's wrong to ask. My very early medical school communication courses, they talked about the warning shot. I think the warning shot still works. So, you know, if you're calling someone on the telephone, letting them know that, you know, you're you're wanting to talk for, with them for a few minutes about some of the information you've received. Pause. Wait to hear what their response is, right? I already looked at the report, doctor. I know what you're going to tell me. Or maybe they say, oh, my goodness, I thought we weren't going to talk about this until we see each other in the office, right? So it's kind of putting out there why you're calling and then stopping talking and listening for the response. You can learn a lot about where someone is. And then you might say something like, you know, I have some potentially concerning, serious, worrisome, right? Whatever word you want to put to the information that I'd like to talk with you about today. Am I catching you at a good time? Pause. Listen, right? And then also, too, I I would inquire potentially about, you know, as we start this conversation, where are you? Who's with you? Is there someone else you'd like to have join the conversation? Right. So again, just kind of approaching it slowly, sharing information one piece at a time with a little bit of a warning shot as you go along and pausing along the way. Because if we just stop talking, oftentimes patients will tell you everything you need to know about how to navigate that situation. And I guess how these situations and your ability to control the not control their their knowledge of information, but their ability to set the stage um, change with our new you know policies with electronic medical records. I mean, oftentimes people know their biopsies or their CT scans before I do. Yeah, has that made an impact in your ability to effectively have difficult conversations? Yeah, you're right. It does introduce for many of us a different kind of dynamic in the way the order in which the information is shared. You know, there. I think we both remember a time when the doctor was the holder of all information until it was decided by the doctor, shared. Um, and we don't live in that space anymore. And, and I think that's okay. Um, I think we need to have sensitivity, again, about the variety of ways that people like to have information. So for some people to be able to click on that result and open it up themselves, that actually is better for them. For some people, that might not at all be, quote unquote, better. So I think um, having sensitivity around that, again, asking about how they like uh, to receive information and being ready that you might not know what the patient knows or doesn't know already. So to start with, help me understand what you know now, right? What information do you already have? I, I'll often say, you know, what have the doctors told you about your, your cancer, your heart failure, your illness, right? So start by asking to find out where the patient is, and then you can meet them there and, and fill in the gaps. And I think, too, just remembering to expect emotion and, and respond to the emotion that's invariably going to be there. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, from what I'm hearing that Really, of course, communication is key, but not having delivering bad news as an event, like as 
as like a moment in time as a single conversation, setting expectations, learning about people, having continuing conversations is really is really kind of the key. Is that does that seem seem like a, a takeaway? Yeah, I think so. And I think just the relationship centered nature of communication and information. Uh, things are a lot easier to navigate when there's relationship around them, right? So where there's trust, where there's um, shared expectations, where uh, there's some familiarity, right, with each other. I know a little bit about you. You know a little bit about me. We're we're in this together. I think the relationship piece of that is really important. I also think I love your comment about, you know, communications, not just one event, you know, um, you don't just drop a bomb, <laughs> you, you know, unexpectedly. You, you help people be prepared for what's coming and you're there for the fallout too after that. Excellent. Well, you've provided us some great insights today. Appreciate uh, you sharing your insights with us. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. To make a direct online referral to our Tossa Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive a confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. For more podcast episodes, visit our website, clevelandclinic.org slash cancer advances podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.